Okay, we almost finished last week. We'll start here. Right? Okay. Let's pick up very briefly, very, very briefly talking about the rest of the Hasmonean period and we'll break into the Roman period. Um, we left off with basically a resurgence in Jerusalem's size during the late Hasmonean period. Um, it, it became, again, a, a major urban center. It also became a center for religious life in the Jewish community. Admittedly, forcibly a little bit, but, but it did become the center for the religious community. Uh, and we left off talking about what the Hasmoneans did and said to kind of legitimize their, their rule. And so we, we mentioned that the Hasmoneans did not qualify as sons of David, and yet they were trying to call themselves kings. They didn't do that early on. What term did they use? Nasi. It's an important messianic term later on. It's a loaded term. It's like calling yourself the son of man, right? The son of man in Aramaic is how you say a certain man. Like if you're starting a joke, you say, okay, so three dudes walking into a bar, right? a certain guy is walking on the street. That's what baronosh uh, in Aramaic, that's what it means. The son of man literally means a certain guy. But it's also a loaded messianic term. So it's a term, for instance, that Jesus refers to himself with. He always refers to himself as son of man. And then the question is always, is he making a messianic claim or not? And if anybody says, you're, you're claiming to be Messiah, he says, no, not a, a certain man. But of course, religious people think he was, and that's why you use loaded term. Well, the, the Hasmoneans used the term nasi because it was a term that wasn't explicitly king, but it was leader, and later on, it, it had uh, messianic overtones. Then later, they began to call themselves explicitly king, the king of, of Israel. They also began to refer to themselves as priests, which, as we left off last week, is a no-no. Right? We talked last week. You can't claim to be both from the tribe of Levi and from the tribe of Judah. You can't qualify for king and for priest. And yet these guys did that. They claimed to be these priest kings, which probably caused a lot of, uh, of dissension among very conservative Jews at the time who said, you just can't do that. That's unorthodox, it's unacceptable, you can't do it. So as long as these Hasmonean kings, right, who were neither kings nor priests, were claiming to be the high priest, they're then meddling into the high priesthood, and the, the, even though they loved the temple and they loved Judaism, they would object to the, the occupants of the high priest, uh, the role of high priest. Their excuse, their, their rationale, I should say, was that they were they were going to build the kingdom like Solomon and David. They're going to bring back this golden age. What until a trustworthy prophet should arise? So the, and you find this in, in First Maccabees uh, 14. The idea was that they were going to just they were going to serve as priest and king kind of in an adjunct sense, kind of, we're going we're gonna to do this until a, a, true, a true prophet arises, a true leader arises. Until then, we'll, we'll do it. How's that? Right? We talked about how if no one ever comes, they get to maintain their, their mark. So um, that's where we left off. A couple more things. Um, <coughs> we talked about the Hasmoneans really expanding their building. Okay. So one of the things you can see here is the southeast corner of the Temple Mount. Maybe you can't see it. Um, but you'll notice some small stones to a certain point, and then over here you'll notice the bigger stones that are beveled around the edges. And what this is an example of is when you, when you do archaeology, you can see that these smaller stones are kind of the, Hes are the Hesmonean stones. Whereas, and you can download this on the, on the, on the notes online, you can see here, 
what Herod came to do, we're going to talk about Herod next, what he came to do to expand things. So you notice the differentiation, the difference between the sizes of the stones here on the bottom and the stones here on the top. Right? As technology got better, specifically mortar, with the creation and the invention of mortar, um, you don't need as big a stone. These stones were all big and didn't need any mortar. They just sit on top of each other. That's a lot of work. It's much more efficient to use small stones and mortar. It's easier to build. And so what you'll notice in modern day houses, we don't even build houses like brick anymore, right? We build them out of wood, especially in California, earthquake zones. You frame them up with wood and put some, some drywall in there and call it a house. Okay? So as technology improves, stones get smaller. But you'll, but you'll be able to notice, if you do archaeology, the difference between early stones and late stones, especially when you see a scene. It's a definite, definite indicator that, that there was some expansion of it. Um, there is, that's uh, hard, uh, Al Hager. Hager. Um, there's a place just outside of Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Bethlehem means what, by the way? Bethlehem. What's Bethlehem in Hebrew? Bread. House of bread. Right? House of bread. The bread basket. Um, we have these things called Solomon's Pools. They're named Solomon's Pools, but they're Hasmonean. They're, they're kind of a way to expand the water supply. It's just a big reservoir like we have all over LA. <coughs> to make them sound better, you name them after somebody much older. So they're called Solomon's Pools, but they date to the Hasmonean period. I just want to put this up here, um, print it off, print it off on the notes, don't need to write it all down. But I did want to take just a moment to highlight basically where this course gets its name, but also um, What's happening during the, the Hasmonean period is Jerusalem is trying to reassert itself. The Hasmonean is trying to reassert Jerusalem as the center of religious Judaism. Okay. So in Ezra, uh, Ezra nine and ten, we see this um, attempt to reestablish what they consider to be religious purity, and that is there were very strict social laws put in place so that you don't marry foreign people. You don't marry any non-Jews. You don't marry ethnically any different. Today we look at that and say, well, that's ridiculous, right? You, you know, we're, we're all about integration. You can marry who you want, look who you want. But back then, it was now you have to keep everything pure. Don't, don't, and a lot of that is retained. A lot of this modern don't marry outside of your race comes from Ezra and Nehemiah and comes from these old, old biblical injunctions against doing it. But they tried to make people a pure people. And, you know, they would say, they would say that they're trying to make the people a pure and holy people like they were uh, you know, ten centuries earlier. And you can debate that. Many do. So that's one of the things they did. Uh, the other one was they, they, they destroyed and or exiled a lot of the native populations. A lot of the people who lived there who weren't Jewish. They either forcibly converted them or killed them or got rid of them somehow. We call that today what? Yeah, it's, it's some kind of ethnic cleansing. Basically, you drive out people who aren't like you, who don't believe what you believe, who don't think the way you want to think. Again, this does this hasn't stopped. This this kind of cleansing goes on today, right? And we we uh, rightly say it's terrible, uh, but it doesn't mean it doesn't happen, and it doesn't mean it didn't happen. We also have a, a great account of the forced conversion of foreigners. And this was, again, we had a generation of people in the Seleucids who, under the ban of circumcision, weren't circumcised. 
when Al Hasmoneans are going to come along and superficially demonstrate that we're all Jewish by forcibly circumcising everyone they could. Right? Keep this idea in mind because when we talk about Herod the Great, he and his family were some of these people who were forcibly circumcised. And the downside of being having a religion forced upon you is now you people are saying, I'm going to kill you if you don't convert. And if you do convert, the ones who were Jewish before you converted are saying, what? You're a what? You're a poser or you know, you're, you're, you're only half Jewish, things like that, which is what happened to Herod the Great. We'll talk about this um, The last thing is the temple became, as if it was not already before, the temple became the center of everything. Not only the religious axis movement, uh, but the administrative axis movement. So um, they imposed a temple tax. Everyone had to bring uh, money, kind of like an annual tax, a repaying income tax, and you have to pay tax um, to support the temple. Whether you went there or not, whether you, whether you were Jewish or not, everybody pays a temple tax. And then they also tried to um, enhance the religiousness, at least superficially, of people by by endorsing and enforcing uh, aspects of ritual purity. And by that we mean ritual baths. <coughs> these are not baths that you take for hygienic purposes. These are baths that you take purely for ritual purposes, like holy water in front of a cathedral or the fountain in front of a mosque. Um, these were, these were um, uh, bodies of water that you would symbolically immerse yourself in. I would argue that these ritual baths, they're called mikvahs, mikvah or mikvahot. And we find them not only in Jerusalem, but we find them in Qumran. So we find them where they found, where they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. We find them in well, yeah, presumably they're elsewhere. Um, like they are elsewhere. Um, so we have ritual baths. And then you have things like the ashes of the red heifer, which comes up in popular folklore every once in a while. Um, basically, they took a particular kind of cow and sacrificed it. They took those ashes and used them in, in rituals. So they really became specific with how to do these specific rituals. Again, they're trying to make up for the lack of activity, or maybe maybe they're trying to cover their own atrocities, the ethnic cleansing, all this stuff, by, by superficially or really ramping up the ritual. So see how religious we are, see how holy we are? We use only the ashes of the red heifer. We always use a mikvah oath. In the meantime, they're doing all the things that you're not supposed to be doing, not taking care of widows and orphans and social justice and all those things. The very things, by the way, that the prophets criticized those that came before them. Right? You bring me all these sacrifices, but you don't uh, take care of the poor like that. Um, so this, the temple becomes very central in Hasmonean life. The other thing to note during the Hasmonean period is that the priesthood becomes. Um, the preeminent aspect of administrative order. The reason that the kings also wanted to call themselves high priests is that they realized that the high priest is who truly had the administrative power in the kingdom. And the literature of this period reflects that transition. So no longer is it about the king, it's now about the high priest. Whoever is the high priest, that's not only the, the uh, religious ruler, but the administrative ruler as well. So in Sirach, Wisdom of Sirach is one of these deuterocanonical books. Protestants may have never have heard of it, but Catholics know it's in there somewhere. Right, there's a portion of Bibles that uh, Protestants don't accept and Catholics do. It's called Pseudepigrapher or Deuterocan. Um, 
end here, you'll see that all of the traits, all of the responsibilities that were given to the king are now applied to the priest. And it reminds you, by the way, I have anointed you, O high priests, as well. Not just the kings, I've also anointed you guys. So basically, you begin to see literature promoting the role of high priest. Um, we, we've already talked about the temple tax. Um, and your reaction to the, the temple as occupied by these Hasmonean priest kings usually dictated your stance towards the temple. Let me say that again. Um, how you interpreted whether or not the, the Hasmoneans could, could serve as priest and king uh, dictated how you saw the temple. Everybody loves Judaism, if you're a Jewish at the time. Everybody loved the temple, but you didn't always like the occupants. It's like many Americans today. They might love the country and love the White House, but might not love the occupant, whoever happens to be president or speaker of the house or former president or whatever. Whoever, you can love your country without loving the person. And that's what happened. So a lot of people were saying, well, I want to be Jewish, but I, I can't take what uh, is going on in the temple, the corruption of the temple. <coughs> so they would break away and form their own sects, S-E-C-T-S, sects. And uh, that's why we, I think we see an explosion of all these sectarian groups at this time period. There were all different ways of dealing with what was happening with the high priesthood. Two of those sects um, are the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Okay. Uh, I'll just give you a heads up here. The Sadducees kind of ran the temple. They were kind of the elite, very wealthy folks. Didn't believe in the afterlife, didn't believe heaven and hell, angels, demons. They liked things the way they were. They felt that they were, you know, all, all of what we see in humanity is um, uh, free will, basically. I'm responsible for my faith. And this is the big, I always try to get a lost reference on that. This is the big debate of lost, right? Is, does faith drive us? Is someone else kind of pushing us where we're supposed to go? Or do we have free will? Okay, for those of you who are watching Lost tonight, it's 9 o'clock. Um, so the Sadducees believe no angels, no demons. When you die, you die. And everything that is all my fate is my responsibility, which is what we would expect from people who are very wealthy, right? If you're wealthy, you tend to take credit for your own wealth, your own success. Of course, I'm wealthy. I, I work very hard. And I, Whereas the Pharisees were lower to middle class and weren't focused on the temple. They still knew the temple was there. They still would uh, acknowledge the temple and revere it. But they were, they didn't really like the way things were, right? So they, uh, the Pharisees, accepted the existence of angels and demons, of heaven and a hell, of some kind of afterlife, some kind of resurrection, if you will. Um, this, these were the ones who kind of expected a Messiah. They, they like the idea of someone coming back to change things up, as opposed to the Sadducees who were fine with governing and ruling. Okay. Um, and as we'll see in our, in our next lecture, um, these guys are kind of behind the rise of synagogues. So synagogues are houses of worship that aren't the temple. Houses of Jewish worship that aren't the temple. Um, and then we talked about, when well, we talked about the Hasmonean leaders, that depending on, it's just like you're seeing in the British parliamentary elections today, and I don't know if you're following this, right, there was no clear winner. The conservatives have the most vote, votes, but they didn't get the Tories, right, but they didn't get enough. And so now somebody's got to cut a deal. And there's this little tiny party called the Liberal Democrats who are going to be the kingmakers. If they make a coalition with the conservative, the conservative leader is going to be the prime minister. If they make a deal with the Labor Party, 
the Labour Party guy is going to be the Prime Minister. Right? So they, they can act as kingmakers even though they don't have a, a ton of power. Whoever was backed, but let me rephrase it, the different kings, leaders of the Hasmoneans, would try to get the backing of these different groups. If you could quell the, if you could win over the popular vote, then you could, you could do kind of what you wanted successfully. Many parallels to our modern political situation, both here and in, and in Europe. Um, so the Pharisees apparently demanded that Hyrcanus give up the high priesthood at one point. Okay. Um, and, and then as we saw from Salome, Alexander, and all of these, um, they would try to go to these different Jewish groups for their backing. And if they could win their backing, then they could be made high priest. Until someone else came along with the backing of another group that was surging in popularity, and then this guy would be overthrown, and that would be high priest. So even though you're king, you still need to appease the people and appeal to the people and try to win support from the people. But as you can see, back and forth, back and forth, you've got um, Alexander Janaeus, one of the Hasmonean kings, at one point massacred 6,000 Pharisees because they opposed him. He backed the Sadducees. <coughs> so Jewish sectarian groups at this time had a lot of influence because they controlled the religion of the people, the thoughts and emotions of the folks. So the kings would always try to lobby and, and gain the support of these different Jewish groups. If it sounds like the ultimate mixture of religion and politics, it is. And if it sounds very little different from what we have today, it's not. Right? It's the same idea. I read a great quote today. Uh, Napoleon Bonaparte said, uh, religion is what keeps the poor from killing the rich. And I thought about that. Right? So basically, if you can control religion, if you control the, the beliefs and the feelings of people, then you have a better, easier chance of getting them to do what you want, backing and supporting them. How, what's the easiest way to control the thoughts and beliefs of the people? Call yourself the high priest. Now, you're obviously going to upset a lot of people who might rebel, but over time, so that's another class. But that's what's going on in the late Hasmonean period. Let's talk about the end of these guys. We, we mentioned that uh, Salome Alexandra um, uh, became the queen, the first queen. A great test question. Uh, independent leader of the Jews um, until Goldemeyer. Um, when she, when Salome died in '67, she named her Khanid. Whoops. When she died, she named uh, Hyrcanus as successor to the kingship. Uh, he was already the high priest. She had already made him the high priest, um, and she was sympathetic to he was sympathetic to the Pharisees. However, Janaeus, as we just talked about, supported the Sadducees. Um, he was only there for about three months. Hyrcanus was um, when his younger brother Aristobulus II. Uh, who agree uh, with his father's Sadducean stance, rose up in rebellion. So now you've got brothers rising against brothers in rebellion. He favored the Sadducees, and he defeated John Hyrcanus II uh, at Jericho. So Hyrcanus was the high priest, and then was named the king when Salome Alexander died. So he got to be both for about three months. right? And then Aristobulus came in and took him on and beat him. Why am I telling you all this? 
what tends to happen to a government when you have coup after coup after coup after coup, brothers in fighting? Instead of fighting whatever enemies out there, they're fighting amongst themselves, they're weakening themselves, and what eventually happens is the Romans come. And as we'll learn, we saw the Assyrians, they were bad, the Babylonians were worse, the Romans, they took them prisoners. What Rome want, they got. The Romans put John Hyrcanus back as high priest, but stripped him of all political authority, and the Roman general Pompey comes to town in 63 BC, it should be in yellow, 63 BCE, Pompey shows up and annexes Jerusalem for Rome. Thus ends the Hasmonean period and begins the Roman period. Any questions? <coughs> I'll leave this up for three more seconds. Any questions on the Hasmoneans? Yeah? How do you spell Nazi? In, uh, in English, it'd be like N A S I, then however you spell it. It's an, it's an olive. But it's N A S I apostrophe. Sounds like a pop over here. Okay, let me move over to Romans. Romans? 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 